0: Shant Malhotra, I'll be chatting with Ed Cohen. The Middle Road a Brief is a thought leader platform enabling social change and impact globally. The startup blends media with EdTech to promote and upskill the audience, publications, articles, online courses, podcasts and videos across various topics. Now example, it could be economics, and development economics, finance and sustainable finance, impact valuation and statistics, well-being, art, culture, and focuses also majorly on United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The mantra of the startup is to spread affordable, quality higher education. You can check out www.themiddleroad.org. Today I am with a fascinating guest and I've, I've really, you know, you'll love today's conversation. It is something very different from Dr. Ed. And to give you a brief description, Dr. Ed suffers from an incurable ailment. Yet, developed self-reflection and self-care. That helps him to flourish not despite but because of his illness. Now these are his words. Please welcome Dr. Ed Cohen. He's the professor at the Rutgers University and a psychagogue at Healing Council, a therapeutic practice for healing. An accomplished author, Ed's recent book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know actually draws on 50 years of living with Crohn's to consider how western medicine turned from an art of healing towards a science of medicine and it deeply reflects both the medical pac- practitioners and their patients. With his new book, Cohen advocates reviving healing role for all those whose lives are touched by illness. Other books are a body worth defending, immunity, biopolitics and the apotheosis of the modern body and the talk on the wild side towards a genealogy of a discourse on male sexualities. As a PhD from Stanford University in modern thought, this is something we'll chat about. Summa Cum Laude, uh, honors for English and mathematics from Georgetown University. Hello, Dr. Ed Cohen. Uh, thank you for joining the Middle Road platform.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to meet you.
0: I, I just have to say that again. I mean, it's, it, it's very fascinating reading your book. I think it's just mind-boggling, uh, not only the work which you have done, but I, as a literally, I, I mean, I myself, uh, you know, write so many things. I think it's just fantastic to sort of learn so much from you. Very artistic, uh, you know, it just reminds me of some of the older classics I used to read. <laughs> I, I was just uh, amazed. I think it was just mind-boggling for me. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so Ed, let's start. Uh, first, let's understand the uh, term psychagogue. Uh, no, uh, we know, we have heard a lot about Pedagogy, And you've described this actually in your LinkedIn profile. So would you like to explain how it is different from pedagogy? Sure.
1: Um, so uh, so first of all, uh, psychagogy and pedagogy were basically twins. They both existed simultaneously in antiquity and in Greece. And so basically I'm talking about a Western lineage of knowledge practices. Um, and pedagogy the word literally means the teaching or the conduct of children Um, and the idea of pedagogy is that you uh, will try to inculcate someone with some knowledge or practice or you know some sort of capacity that they didn't have and that by the end of the process of pedagogy they will have learn this thing for themselves. So whatever the pedagogue is doing is just inculcating a kind of knowledge that could be a practical knowledge, it could be a conceptual knowledge, um, but that fundamentally it's about you know uh, entering into a process in which by the end of the process, the student has acquired some capacity that has been transmitted by the teacher to the student and, you know, and, you know, the reason it's called pedagogy in the sense of the teaching of children is that there's always an asymmetry, right, between the teacher, who's the adult, and the student, who's the child. Um, Psychagogy uh, sim- has a similar kind of etymology, but it means the conduct or the leading of souls. So The word psyche in Western culture and I'm not sure you know, what the equivalent would be in South Asian culture. I mean, every culture has different kind of ways of reflecting on what it means to be a living being. Um, and, but in, in Western culture, and actually the notion of psyche, if people who do work on the ways in which Western concepts develop, actually trace the lineage of the concept of psyche to South Asia and to actually shamanistic practices, Um, And the word psyche means, can mean many things, but it roughly means soul or mind or some kind of um, essence of the person that is, you know, um, that has the capacity to be larger and, and grow and develop, you know, through the course of a person's life. So psychagogy, unlike pedagogy, Is a process where it's not so much about the person. There's a person teaching who's leading another person to uh, to knowledge that already exists. But psychagogy is a, a a a dynamic relation between two people. It doesn't have that necessarily power hierarchy of you know of adult and child. And the goal is that the person, well, both people ideally in a psychological racial le- relation are transformed in their sense of their being in the world of who they are in relationship to themselves and to each other. So instead of the communication of kind of practical knowledge or some kind of capacity, um, psychology really is about helping people to reflect on who they are and to understand that that we are a lot of oftentimes most times much we are much more capacious than we necessarily live in our everyday lives. And you know, as, so the role of someone as a psychagogue is to hold that, to say, you know what, I believe that you uh, actually have more capacity to live a life that is more rich for you, more meaningful, more vivid, whatever your values and goals are, than you currently are allowing yourself to uh, understand. And that through conversation that perhaps you'll come to a bigger sense of who you are and you'll be able to be in the world not just in relationship to yourself but the way that you know you're in a better relationship to yourself is you're in a better relation to other people right that that the whole point of you know what we call working on ourselves i mean you know it is we we want to suffer less i mean nobody's you know well, some people do like suffering but uh but <laughs> but but by and large, you know, we, we do try to give it up or you know, move beyond. Uh you know, but the but also because the way that we experience uh ourselves, you know, in a bigger capacity is actually our relationships to other people change. Our relationships to the world, our relationships to our communities, our nations, you know. Um so psychagogy is a sort of much more comprehensive um kind of dynamic relation between people. That's about growing and developing and learning, but not about just simply acquiring knowledge and, you know, storing it up, especially these days, you know, in technical fields where, you know, knowledge acquisition is, you know, basically storing up capital in the bank, you know, kind of thing. Um, So yes, psychagogy is more about um, asking questions about who do you want to become, how do you want to live, what's important for you, and how, how can you achieve that? And so, you know, my role model in this, the, the kind of, you know, most famous psychagogue was Socrates, um, you know, who went around ancient Greece asking people, well, what do you think you know? And then it turned out nobody knew anything, you know, and that was, and that was important for them to know, that there were things that they didn't know, and they had a lot yet to learn. Which, you know, sort of as a teacher, I feel like that's a basic principle. Like we always have more to learn. I mean, what else is life for?
0: Actually, I it's fascinating you talk about it. Uh, I think you have used one of the quotes of Socrates that I think I'm biased because I know what I don't know. Something on those lines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very fascinating character. Really want to you know, read more. So this is great. You know, you bring psychol- uh, f- philosophy, and you talk about psychology and you know how the intersection works. Uh, that's really fascinating about uh, the way you approach things and that's what i you know saw that when i started reading more about your work now we we'll go to the you know the, the basic your life has revolved uh, uh, ever since you were diagnosed uh, for crohn's disease now you yourself has been you know you're a huge motivation because you in spite of being diagnosed at a very early age learned how to succeed and triumph in a me- measurable manner a brief idea about Crohn, Crohn is an autoimmune chronic inflammatory or disease that can sometimes also causes life-threatening complications. You you mentioned in your introduction uh, with reference to your website that uh, Crohn actually developed self-reflection and self-care, which I talked about within you, which uh, made you flourish not despite, but uh, not despite, but because of your illness, very proactive and positive attitude. So you could speak about your self-awareness journey from a very early age and how it has shamed you as a person and then we'll of course come to one your uh, another hero which which, uh, michelle Foucault. so um
1: so i mean just to be clear it from the very beginning it wasn't a good thing and you know when i was 13 and i was very very ill and i was first given this diagnosis and told that i had a kind of illness that i didn't know the word like they that my doctor said to me, well, you have an autoimmune disease. It has no cure, but it still has no cure. And the best we can do is try to manage your symptoms. Uh, and I was like, well, what is this autoimmune thing of which you speak? And you know, so then they had to try to explain it to me, a 13 year old, I was a child, right? So, uh, so at first they said, well, it's like you're allergic to yourself. Now that was not super clear. What does that mean? I'm allergic to myself. So then they tried to clarify and they said, well, it's like part of yourself is rejecting itself. And again, this was not like fully comprehensible to my adolescent mind. And so finally they said, well, it's like you're eating yourself alive. Okay. That's a very vivid image. I hold on to that. But that was not a helpful image. Like to be told at 13.
0: I can understand it a very young age. I went through accidents. I do understand how much it would have uh, had a effect on. Yeah.
1: And that's one of the things, I mean, in, in most of my recent work is that medicine has a lot to offer us. And, you know, there are many, I mean, I would personally be dead without it. I'm not, but when we receive medical care in the sense of any kind of medical care, it could be Ayurvedic medicine. It could be a traditional Chinese medicine. It could be, you know, the kind of bioreductionist scientific medicine of the West. But whenever we receive treatments, we don't just receive a treatment. We also receive an explanation for what is happening to us, a frame of reference within which, you know, we, we, we are helped to understand what's happening to us. Right. So when we have a treatment, it's not just something that affects our bodies, it affects our minds, right? It gives us frameworks to within which to think. And so at 13, I was given this framework, you know, to try to understand what was happening to me. And it was not a helpful framework. And not only that I was put on very intense medications, I was put on a medication called prednisone, that's very, very intense corticosteroid and has many, many side effects um, of which I was not told anything because at the time doctors didn't really feel that they had to explain these things to you. And uh, so, you know, basically, I went through my years, you know, between the ages of 13 and 23, jacked up on these incredible drugs. Um, Basically, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of taking them. but many people take prednisone. It's given for everything from, you know, allergies to brain tumors. It's a it is a kind of miracle drug. I don't you know, disregard it. But it has these very powerful both physiological and psychological side effects, including depression, anxiety, mood swings. You know, I put on huge amounts of weight. You know, I was, you know, many, many very unpleasant, you know, kind of side effects that nobody kind of acknowledged as being caused by the drugs. They were just like, Well, you're a teenager. That's why you're so, you know, anxious. That's why you're so, you know, moody, whatever. But it wasn't. It was like it was because of the drug, so that's why I usually refer to it as my adolescence on steroids. And and unfortunately, even though I was on these major drugs, it, they never really suppressed the symptoms, which are basically I was incontinent, like I had constant diarrhea, uh, horrible, you know, kind of cramping, uh, you know, bowel obstructions, and then you know there was all these secondary kinds of. Uh, Elements of the, of Crohn's arthritis and many things to do with your eyes. I mean, autoimmune illnesses are 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 fully systematic. The whole body is, you know, involved. But in my case, the lining of my small intestine was the kind of main place where inflammation, you know, was occurring. Um, and you know, so I lived this kind of life for ten years, went between thirteen and twenty three. Um, you know, constantly rushing for the toilet, constantly, you know, worried about, you know, was I going to soil myself? Um, and then at the age of twenty-two, twenty-three, 23, I got really, really sick again. Um, and I had a, well, I had a small bowel perforation, my, my intestine closed, and, um, and it actually burst. Um, but the hospital I was in, at the time didn't notice that. Um, And as a result, I got these huge infections um, that got progressively worse. And eventually I had an abscess that was on a major blood vessel um, on my intestine and it it kept bursting. And then finally it burst and I was bleeding. I was bleeding to death. Um, So I had a, you know, what people describe as an out-of-body near-death experience. I had the, I was floating around, you know, while they were rushing me to um emergency surgery and you know fortunately i survived that i'm very grateful for that um and when i was still in the hospital recovering because i had these major infections so i had to be on antibiotics for a long period of time i spontaneously started going into these trances um and you know there was nothing in my background that prepared me for anything like this i mean I I always I joke, you know, my parents were dogmatically atheist. I mean, they were just, my mother was a Marxist. My father was a physical chemist. You know, all that mattered was matter. You know, I, that was just nonetheless, you know, there I was in the hospital and I could start listening to music and I could go into this place where there was all of this light. And and I just thought of it as pain management. I could take the light and I could wrap it around you know, where my intestines had been taken out and, you know, where my liver had been carved up and, you know, just to, to modulate the pain. And then I could just kind of fall into this, just place of really peaceful, very spacious. Um, and, you know, at first it freaked the doctors and nurses out because they would come into the room and they would try to get my attention and I would be elsewhere. Uh, but then they realized that they just turned off the music, I would come out of it. And, and, uh, the and you know I didn't really think nope you know I didn't think about that as being a special experience or my the doctors didn't but then when I finally left the hospital I had an exit interview with my surgeon and he said to this thing to me that was like it just like seared itself into my brain um he said you are the sickest person I've operated on in the last five years who's still alive and I don't know how you got better so quickly and that just I mean, that turned my world around. I mean, both because on the one hand, it, I had been in denial about how sick I was. I mean, you know, when you're 23, you don't wanna be like, I'm dying here. <clears throat> so I was like, oh, I was dying. Okay, that's really, I have to take that. Industry. But the more shocking thing was my, this incredible surgeon. I was at Stanford University Hospital. It's one of the major medical centers in the world. And here's this very fancy surgeon saying to me, I don't know how you got better. Like, I operated on you, but I don't know how you got better. And that was, like, really, like, eye-opening, mind-blowing for me. Because, you know, he was saying, I can do this. I operated on you. You were dying. You survived. But And he, so he knew what he did, but he didn't know how I got better so quickly. And that really kind of made me stop and go, well, how did I get better Like, what was that? And uh, in the wake of that experience, I had a number of, you know, as you can imagine, if you anybody who's like had accidents or, you know, shocks of any kind. I mean, you know, when your life is unsettled in that way, it's unsettling for your whole life, you know? And so afterwards I had one day, I just had this like really clear, you know, insight that I don't know where it came from that said, you can either learn to live your life differently, or you can keep going through these kinds of experiences over and over again. And I was like, "Ooh, I'll pick the first one, not the second one. <laughs> the second one I had, and I don't like that. So the first one. And, you know, and once I kind of was like, I'm interested in healing, I'm interested in learning more about there that that then suddenly it was, I was open to all of these different kinds of teachers who I would never have been interested in before, but suddenly they became amazing, you know, interlocutors. They gave me frameworks, they gave me tools. They gave me a perspective on myself. They helped me to open, you know, to understanding the world in different ways. And, you know, so so it was, it took like a good decade before, Uh, I, my illness became something that I began to understand might not just be an affliction, you know, might not just be the source of my suffering, but also might be, might be giving me an opportunity to live otherwise, to learn to live otherwise. Um, And that's what I've been trying to do for the last four decades, is to try to learn to live otherwise. Because by and large, when I look at the world that we live in, it's kind of crazy. You know, I mean, if if not, you know, really seriously pathological, if we think at the level of global warming, or economic systems, or, you know, I mean, we all could use a lot of healing, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, it, so, you know, you went through a very traumatic experience, uh, and you connect, and you, of course, you, you become, uh, you know, uh, that had a significant influence. When you go back, and when you're know, recounting the experience, do the memories come back? Uh, do you... Do you feel that made you a bit stronger? But you know, there are certain experiences you can never forget. Of course, there's a, so much of pain, not only f- physically. I mean, it's actually the mental trauma which you went through would have been substantial. How would you? Yes,
1: it? well, you know, absolutely. That you you make a very good point, and I feel really very lucky. I mean, as I said, I've had really amazing teachers for many years, but also for me, the process of writing this book called "On Learning to Heal" or "What Medicine Doesn't Know." It was also a healing and a learning. Uh and and so partly by finally it took me a very long time to be able to write and speak about what happened to me when I was a child, what happened to me when I was in the hospital, especially, you know, different kinds of healing practices. Uh you know, I still had some part of me that was like, you know, materialism is the only thing I can really talk about. I I mean, you know, even now, you know, when I say spirituality, I really put that in quotation marks and I have a lot of question marks about what that means. But what's really clear to me you know, now that wasn't clear to me at an earlier point in my life is we are always more than we know. That is to say, knowledge is a really important resource that the kind of organisms that we have are. But we have much more intelligence than just knowledge alone. Um, and so when I think back to earlier moments, I have a lot of compassion for myself, you know, um, that took a long time to really be able to go, Oh, you know, that was really bad. What happened when I was a child and, you know, and the way I had to live at such an early age, I mean, like between the ages of 13 and twenty, I basically was like an old person. You know, I wasn't like a young person whose body was, growing and developing and being healthy. I was like going, like I was going to the doctor all the time. I was taking major drugs that were affecting not just my body, but my mind, you know, my body was out of control. I was incontinent, but I was also on these medications that made me gain 80 pounds that, you know, my face was giant. You know, I was, I most, at least in, in, you know, North America, you know, most people in a normal course of life, that's something that happens, you know, at the end of your life, you know, when you start having to go to doctors, <laughs> taking all these different kinds of medications. But I was doing that as an adolescent. And so when I reflect back on that, I'm like, I do. I can feel how difficult that was. And I have a lot of compassion. And, and as an adult, it gives me um, some space to give myself a little slack. It's like, hey, look, You've been through a lot in your life, (laughs) you know, so you're not perfect. Hey, you come a really long way. Like this is literal. This year is literally my 50th anniversary of having Crohn's. And, and I'm like, it's my golden anniversary. I'm like, and that is a win. You know, like, I'm like, most people are like, I'm getting old. I'm like, you know, I'm 64. I'm like, oh my God, I'm 64. When I was 13, I thought I was going to be dead, you know? I'm like, my friends are all like, oh, I've got aches and pains. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so alive. I do yoga. I ride my bike. I do, you know, I'm like this. And so it definitely I have a different perspective. And so when I remember the things that happened, they are still painful things. But then I'm also appreciative of, oh, you know, I'm really lucky because I was able and I had enough support and enough resources to Experience them as opportunities to become a much more expansive human being than I might otherwise have
0: been. I can, I can, you know, empathize, and also, you know, you did uh, your PhD from uh, Stanford. That's a fantastic achievement. Excellent academic career, which is like among maybe the top one percent person globally. Uh, before I come there, I'll sort of uh, talk about your intellectual guru and hero, which you which you mentioned um, <laughs> and a literary critic, Michel Foucault. Actually, Michel Foucault, I started watching. I watched just a couple of videos. And of course, he had a huge influence on your thinking. I want to personally ask you, which of the books or publications would you re- recommend to the audience which you think would like to know? Make- <laughs>
1: so, um, yeah, Foucault is my intellectual hero. And a friend of mine, Ardell Lister, made a little video about me talking about why Foucault is my intellectual hero. And it's called Flower Power. So if you're interested, you can look online. Uh, Ardell Lister, uh, it's A-R-D-E-L-E and Lister, L-I-S-T-E-R. And the film is called Flower Power. Um, But uh, Foucault, as you may or may not know, I mean, is one of the major intellectual figures in the European tradition in the 20th century. And, you know, the way that I kind of describe what one of the ways of describing what Foucault's project was, was to ask us to think almost in a way that like Socrates, to ask us to think about things that we take for granted to that we accept as self-evident about ourselves and about the world. And then to reflect on, well, why do you think that's self-evident? And is that necessarily so? And if it's not necessarily so, how might we live otherwise. I mean, that's the general intellectual project. Um, And, Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, when I was in college in 1978, Foucault uh, had written a book called The History of Sexuality that was first translated into English in 1978. And uh, as a young gay man uh, reading this book, and Foucault was also a gay man, uh, who was older and had lived through a different kind of history. Um, that book uh, really rocked my world. Uh, he really asks people to reflect uh, on why, if, and why they think the notion of sexuality is something that is uh, gives us access to a way of understanding what's true about who we are. Um, he asks us to think, uh, to understand that actually sexuality is, a, is not uh, a trans historical concept, but is actually a new concept. Like the word sexuality only appears in the English language in the 19th century. If you asked people before the 20th century, what's your sexuality? They would have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it was completely not a way of thinking or, or acting in the world, um, and understanding that this very basic category that had uh, informed my life. Because when I, when I was first diagnosed with Crohn's, I actually had two pathologies. Because that in 1972, homosexuality was still considered a psychopathology in the United States. Uh, so you know, to um, to try to understand. Well, what is this category that I and everybody I know, you know, take for granted about who we are, but in fact, turns out developed only at a particular point in time and had certain kinds of very profound effects, not just on individuals, but on how people live collectively, especially in relationship to the development of capitalism, that that sexuality you know, it turns out was like a lynch between biology, because it seems like it's something natural, but also economics, because it was the way that population developed. Right. So. Um, so, you know, I read that book when I was 20 uh, and it kind of blew my mind. Um, and so I wanted to know more about Foucault. And then it happened when I was in the hospital uh, because I couldn't attend classes because I was so sick. I did a directed reading on Foucault's, you know, the the books that Foucault published. And he wrote a book called The Birth of the Clinic. Um, And it's about the development of clinical medicine, which is basically hospital medicine. And again, hospital medicine has only existed since the beginning of the 19th century. And it imports a whole bunch of assumptions about uh, what what illness is, what diseases are, how we understand what it means to be sick, but also, you know, the role that doctors play and the kinds of knowledge that doctors are inculcated with and how they're trained to look at the world. So what he he thinks about in that book is like the history of what he calls the medical gaze. Well, reading that book in the hospital while I was being constantly examined gazed you know scanned probed you know was shockingly i because i had you know i had never thought about how medicine basically uh is how invasive medicine is not just like on your body but on your mind like the ways that we think about what's happening to us and and Foucault you know reading Foucault that just it gave me so many new tools to to reflect on what was happening to me so that you know that that convert you know I don't know that that when clinched it you know that was like oh okay and since then uh, I have you know followed everything I know everything I teach Foucault all the time uh, I'm teaching Foucault right now to 18, 19, 20-year-olds and precisely about this question about sexuality because, of course, for 18, 19, 20-year-olds, sexuality is all they think about, you know, so so to challenge them. Uh, so the history of sexuality is a, it's a great book. It's a really hard book to if you've never encountered Foucault. What I tell people that have never really engaged with Foucault and they want to uh, understand something about him for the first time, is to read the interviews with him. There is a book that's called Foucault Live. It's a collection of interviews across 20 years. And he's really, really good in conversation. He explains his ideas and and other people's ideas, Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. and. Uh, And he is very lucid, very um, to the point. Um, So if you just want to like dip in and find, and they're short, right? They're short. So each one, you know, it's like 10 pages most, right? So, uh, and they're beautiful ones. I mean, some like, you know, one of the ones I love teaching is called Friendship as a Way of Life. And it's about why, why have we put so much stress on sex and sexuality? And why don't we understand friendship as a really important way that we connect to other people and how, you know, and and what difference it might it make if we not just individually, you know, we all have friends, but if we collectively valued friendship as like, as important as our sexual relations. Um, there, He has many beautiful short, and that's a very short piece. Um, uh so that's what i would recommend to people who've never really taken a foucaults to read any of the little interviews in foucault live and just get a sampling and then if you are interested you could check out the books <clears throat> he's also better as a lecturer. he he um he was a professor at the collège de france and he gave a, a lectures every year he basically wrote a book every year and those books are uh they're they're easier to read because he's just talking and he's a beautiful lecturer, just beautiful. Um, so I guess that's what I would suggest to you is like try their interviews, try the lectures. Then if you want, read Discipline and Punish, read History of Sexuality, read Birth of the Clinic, read History of Madness. I mean, but there's a lot of material now. People have uh, you know, published every you know laundry list he ever wrote.
0: He actually, <laughs> what in French so French is a beautiful language, he's always uh, speaking in yeah. French. I think he didn't speak in English much. Uh, he has he
1: towards the end of his life? He got um, he started coming to the U.S. Actually, if you want just like a fun book, um, there is a very fun book called Foucault in California, and this is actually based on uh, he started teaching in the U.S., he started coming to the U.S. in the 1970s and 1980s, and especially to UC Berkeley uh, in, in the Bay Area in San, near San Francisco. And um, this is a little book about how he was invited to give a lecture at a college in Los Angeles by a young gay philosophy professor. And Foucault said, okay, I'll, I'll come down, but you need to take me to Death Valley and we need to do LSD. And- mm-hmm.
0: They say America's <laughs> during that period of time. You know, there's a lot of sort of, of course, came globally. Absolutely. Up. Coming back, I mean, come on now, every, you know,
1: LSD, psilocybin. I mean, one of the things that people are now understanding was that the, that these substances were criminalized for really, were uh, really mostly racist and, um, and very conservative reasons that we're not, you know, we're not medically sound. And in fact, what we're we're finding now, like 60 years later, is that there are a lot of really helpful medical and psychological uh, effects that different kinds of chemical substances have. So one, and Foucault, Foucault, his father was a doctor. And when he was young, he used to take some of his his father's Drugs from the pharmacy. And uh, there's an interview that's in that book, Foucault Live, I talked talk to you about, where one of the things he says is, you know, well, we put so much emphasis on sex, but what if we just thought about pleasure in a much broader way? And, and he says, one of the things we might have to think about is more and better drugs. And, uh, and I was like, okay, that's good. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> So this book, Foucault in California is about Foucault doing this acid trip uh, in Death Valley with this, but it's, I can't even explain it, but it's a much better book than even that, because the story of how this interview came to be published is itself a whole other story. It's a really, it's a very good read. I highly recommend.
0: Now, your topics are within the very esoteric space. You have done your PhD in uh, modern thought. Uh, I would really be interested, how do you sort of correlate that? If you could explain to the work now and R- Rutgers, you are doing a lot of work on uh, women's equality. a case, uh, do take us through what does modern thought mean and uh, any practical implications which, with your recent work? Sure. So actually, modern thought is not esoteric. Uh, and modern thought
1: is what probably most people who live in parts of the world where capitalism has become a dominant way of organizing everyday life, something like wage labor, uh, are living uh, within the terms that were developed uh, during the period of modernity, which people periodized it somewhat differently in different places, but roughly from 1492, from when Europeans uh, colonized North America, and which was not just about the colonization, but was also a kind of change in the entire economic sphere because they were taking silver and gold from the indigenous peoples in the Americas and then inserting them into the world market and with and Spain, and Spain was having, you know, these trade relations with China. And so the whole development of the world economic system, you know, happens from the 16th century onwards. And in that period of time in, in Europe, uh, which, you know, it's slightly different than, you know, the history of South Asia, of course, you know, because, uh, you know, then, you know, the British colonized India, and that was the whole that changed everything. But uh, the, but there was also a kind of change, a, a big change, you know, technologically, economically, but it, really importantly, religiously in the world where Christianity was dominant, you know, until the 16th century, there was the church, there was one church. And then in the beginning of the 16th century, there was the Pro- Protestant Reformation or from the Catholic point of view, the Protestant Revolution uh, that then broke up this one monolithic way of understanding uh, religion. Um, which then also changed the um significance of monarchs in Europe who were understood to be God ordained, you know that God gave them a special little you know ointment or something, and they got to be you know the ruler of everybody and the owner of everything um that that the these assumptions that had come through you know this and developed for basically a thousand years. A, what we call feudalism uh, began to break up and ideas that we now take for granted uh, like the idea of like say the individual or that the most important thing about being a, a, a person is having a body uh, rather than you know being a soul um, that uh, the idea of rights like human rights individual rights that was invented uh, wage labor like you know, in agrarian societies and feudal economies, you, there wasn't wage labor. You weren't paid by the hour to work and to do repetitive tasks, right? So that only became possible because people began to assume that we had a body, the body was our property. We could enter into a contractual relationship with another human being to sell our labor power to someone else for money. And that that money was what we would use for subsistence, so that that body could go on living, right? That feudalism, like rural economies, that's not how they function. And you know, and and feudalism, you know, the lord, you know, takes a portion of of the produce that you grew, but you still have the food that that, that you grew. You know, you. There, there were and you know they might require you to labor for them but they didn't pay you they just conscripted you you went and build their castle or you or if there was a war they were like hey you have to come fight for me you know uh all of that changes in the in the mod, what we call the modern period and so modern thought is really instead of being esoteric it is what is most embedded in the fundamental assumptions that Seem to ground the entire way in which our global economy functions. I mean, it was like to me, like the COVID crisis, you know, was a really interesting uh, phenomenon. I mean, it was horrible and tragic, and but just as an intellectual, because everything I teach and learn and like try to communicate, it it was all completely self-evident. Like suddenly, like. The economy is shut down, society shut down, transportation shut down. You know, like, oh, here's this virus that, you know, viruses are really weird, interesting things. They, are they living? Are they not living? You know, are they animate or are they inanimate? Actually, you know what, they're, they're paradoxical. And this little paradoxical virus, that can't move by itself, it can't do anything, but we are the carriers for, because we had developed this global system you know, in which we, you know, offshore production to other places and we move back and forth. Suddenly this inert, you know, animate, inanimate, who knows what, you know, virus could travel everywhere and disrupt everything. And suddenly it was like all of the assumptions that we made about how we lived in the world were just like, this isn't working. It's really not working. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, this, yep, this is what I've been saying for, you know, <laughs> this is what I've been, so, the modern thought really is i mean it's very influenced by Foucault, obviously my perspective on it, but we're I think you know and, and I think in different parts of the world, that happens in different ways. but I do think that we are in this period of time where these assumptions that you know came to be taken for granted four hundred four three four hundred years ago and are underwriting you know these large systems i mean they seem to be kind of Falling apart, you yeah. know. I mean, that—that that seems.
0: Uh, to... I just want to sort of check if I'm right on my. So, when you're talking about modern thought, I do understand. You know, it's, uh, the emergence of sustainable development goals, or uh, people having a m- by far much more emotive. You just here, dogma economics, written by Kate, so w- would also be sort of uh, Kate uh, Raworth. So, sh- would it be also very close to something which you'll talk about within the purview of modern thought? Isn't it a moment, modern thought, would would that be? Yes,
1: yes. So, yes, absolutely. Modernity is like. uh,
0: She is actually stressed a lot about, you know, rather than looking at just precision return, you look at, you put a framework of of sustainable goals or, you know, sort of giving a lot of also preference to empathy and other factors within the economics world.
1: So that's one of the, the things that we're coming to, I think, increasingly understand you know, both within economic systems, but say within environmental systems and the interaction between economic systems and environmental systems, right? That uh, what people have assumed as being the most important variables uh, actually may uh, have really definite limits that actually may have created a lot of problems and that certain things that were uh excluded like affect right or uh or connectivity rather than separation or um uh intuition or you know that that a lot of that a lot of the capacities that we have that our resources for how we live in the world have been devalued because what the, the notion that the most important value that we have is profit and productivity ruled the world, came to rule the world. And unfortunately, that has really deleterious consequences for actually most of the people in the world. Actually, most of the people in the world have not really benefited from that particular way of, of bifurcating our capacity as living beings. Um, And so, yes, so I think, you know, a lot of people right now are are kind of recognizing that hopefully more and more and more, because we really need uh, to have a a new way of thinking. And what's wonderful about modern thought is to understand, well, the way that we think now and the way that, you know, the things that we take as self-evident, actually, they were invented. People invented them precisely in order to change how they live together, in order to change you know, the way that monarchs ruled over their subjects, and they could kill them, they could imprison them, they could take their property, they could take their children, they could take, you know, I mean, that, that, that people invented these new strategies, you know, for living individualism, wage labor, rights, you know, in order to carve out spaces that were not subject to the kinds of violence that monarchs, could Im- impose upon their subjects with impunity, right? Um, and so, at the time that they were developed, I mean, they were, let's call it progressive. They were, you know, they opened up possibilities. But but now they're limiting. You know, they they worked for a while. I mean, and 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 some people really benefited a lot. Some people, you know, in, like enslaved people in North America, you know who were trafficked as property from Africa to the Americas, they did not benefit from this particular way of thinking, you know, that they were not included, you know, in the ambit of what it meant to be an actual human being and that had rights. They had no rights. They were property. Right. So it's not saying everybody, I mean, the benefits were parceled out, you know, very inequitably, but, and yet, you know, for more people, and this is what people say even now, in terms of like the sustainability goals of you know the u n sustainability goals i mean it is the case that you know fewer people in the world live in abject poverty you know than they might have fifty years ago that that's true I'm just saying that's a really low bar uh,
0: that that's a low bar I do understand one point nine dollars per <laughs> per day. Oh, uh, but uh, at least it's a start. I mean, well, that's the thing is like, you know, anchor point, you no
1: time, you know, to introduce some new ways of thinking about value, you know, that are larger than economic values, that economic values are not the only, are not the be all and end all of value, you know, and that there are human values, you know, there are social values, there are psychological values, there are their environmental values, their spiritual values, right? And those, that kind of values may not be quantifiable. You know, they might not fill in a balance sheet.
0: Yeah, right? in the art, she, she was doing this for New Zealand, where well-being or wellness is becoming an index. Even the Scandinavian countries are taking it very seriously now. Do, you, do you talk about modern art? Uh, how do you equate this attitude with, uh, about women's equality? Would there be a framework you bring in? Um,
1: so, so I teach... Um, Uh, in a department, it's called Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. So it's it's a kind of capacious category. Um, So one of the, you know, so again, we approach it like historically. So first of all, like the idea of rights, like where did that idea come from? So, you know, we think about that historically, but even like what the idea of sexual difference is, like what does it mean to be a woman? So, I mean, that really has a lot of different changes, but one of the really important changes that occurred, at least in a kind of European and then colonial context, was that when the world was dominated by the church, like by Christianity, right? The idea of sexual difference was that Eve ate the apple in the garden of Eden or whatever she ate and caused the downfall of paradise, and God decided to punish Adam and Eve by kicking them out of paradise and saying, Eve, you bad girl, you, because you disobeyed me, you will be, you know, forced to give birth, you know, in pain and suffering. And you will go forth, you know, and with your children. And what. And so this idea that, you know, well, yeah, men and women, women were different. But, you know, women were damned basically by God for the disobedience of Eve to, you know, have this like relationship of subservience to men. Right. And that they were then like supposed to live in this pain and suffering or whatever. Um, In the 18th century. uh, Things begin to change, partly because uh, the way, you know, the power of the church, you know, is less dominant in a certain sense, but also because something new occurs, which is that uh, humans begin to be imagined as a species like other living beings. Until 1748, human beings were never part of, uh, human beings were considered to be special beings, that God, you know, the, the Christian European God gave human beings reason and language that other animals don't have, And so humans were supposed to have what the word is dominion over the earth and over the animals and the plants of the earth. And we were supposed to go forth and multiply. And, you know, that was like the So uh, but in the in 1748, this man named Linnaeus, um, he's the one who, who invented the term homo sapiens. And he was the first person to say, well, humans are animals like other animals. Uh, well, or he's more it's more like humans are are living beings like other living beings. And then there was another person at the same time whose name was Buffal, George Leclerc Buffal, who he was the first person who defined species and he's in this way, and he said species is the sexual reproduction of individuals from one generation to the next. That's what a species is. So humans became a species, and that species was defined. In terms of sexual reproduction, where sexual reproduction was defined by the opposition of, of men and women, right so what what women what women women became you know the meaning changed fundamentally uh, in relationship to uh, how uh, how people experience themselves, how you know they were able to make certain kinds of claims like to rights or to legal responsibility. Like women, you know, in, again, in, you know, in a European context mostly, but had no rights to themselves, their, their own bodies. Like the idea of like rape within marriage. Hey, there, there's no rape within marriage. You could, if your husband, you're married, no, your body is his body. He can do whatever he wants. Your property is his property. He can do whatever he wants. Right. That, the idea that women could make claims to being a uh, full human subjects in the way that men were that is only begins to be possible really after the french revolution in you know and that is the beginning the first wave of what we think of as feminism now uh Really, Mary Wollstonecraft in in 1795 wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women. She had lived in France during the revolution. And she is really the first person, the first woman, the first person to make this argument, you know, that hey, women have rights. You know. Uh, so, you know, what uh, you know,
0: so what you know, we try to you uh, know, renaissance and a lot of then like you correctly mentioned. Uh, the feminism movement sort of came from the Western world where they wanted equal rights. And...
1: Yeah, and it's not that, I mean, this is what, so like in my, like my PhD students are, are from all over the world. And actually we have a lot, for some reason, we have a, a lot of students from India and well, actually from South Asia, from India, from Bangladesh, from Pakistan. Um, we also have a lot of students from Africa. We have students from all over the world. And, you know, it's very interesting because it isn't necessarily the case that the paradigms that were invented in European and American contexts actually can be easily translated or transferred to these other contexts, right? Or, you know, we are, we have a lot of students who are from the Middle East, right? And, uh, and you know, in Muslim contexts, right, there, there's very different meanings of what the experience of, of women are, and, you know, so, you know, so one of the things that we try to do is to help students you know who are interested in changing the world because all my students are interested in making the world a better place to live not just for women but for everyone and because one of the things that we understand is that you can't make the world better for like one little group of people especially when that group of people is not little but half of the world so uh you know without without affecting everybody you know So, you know, so what we try to do, you know, what I try to do and what all of my, I have amazing colleagues who also do incredible work all over the world doing organizing and thinking. And uh, so, you know, what we try to help students do, you know, and this is a psychological thing is like not just to teach them knowledge, but to help them develop tools that they can use to think about their lives and the lives of those people that they're connected to in order to live more uh, gracefully more substantially more um, vividly you know and to help others do that as well Um, so that's you know so you know thinking as far as you know and that's the nice thing about the kind of work I'm in you know or the field I teach in rather than like a traditional discipline like philosophy or history or sociology or economics you know because those are all predicated on the other, you're going to be objective and that there's this real thing that you're going to do. And, you know, and it's not like, oh, you know what, I, I should be changed by the things that I'm learning. You know, like Foucault, my hero, says, what's the point of writing a book if you're the same person at the, when you finished writing the book as when you started writing the book? Why did you write the book?
0: Yeah, yeah that's I understand. The thought would change. Yes, you change, as a and you should change.
1: Engine. It's not just yeah. The thoughts should change, and you and the thinking should change you, right? I mean that thinking. You know, we are thinking beings. Yeah. You know? So so that's that's how I would explain what what we do and and why I'm in the world that I'm in. Um, because I actually
0: don't. You also published a book on learning to heal or what medicine does not know. You mentioned how medicine is not an exact science. If you could sort of you know take us through that, but. What I was also interested is, you know, there's something known as loving kindness, which you can give to yourself. That I really lo- look forward to hearing from you.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been I've been working on the history of medicine because, as I, you know, I was saying, you know, what I get from Foucault is, you know, trying to understand things that we think are of as self-evident and trying to understand how they came to seem self-evident. So, you know, because I have this you know, disease, Crohn's disease, which was defined as an autoimmune disease. I, you know, once I started asking questions about it, I was like, wait, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like uh, what, first of all, what is autoimmunity? Now it turns out nobody knows what autoimmunity is. Medicine knows that they don't know. That, That autoimmunity is a paradox. According to the prevailing theories of immunology, uh, which is, was defined by this man named McFarlane Burnett, who you know, won the Nobel Prize and whatever, uh, he defined immunology as the science of self, not self-differentiation. That that's the that and that continues to be the basis of almost all immunological research. But then autoimmunity is a paradox because what autoimmunity is, is that Self mistakes itself as if it were other than itself. And I was like, wait a second. What? 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 Myself is mistaking myself as other than myself. It's, I mean, that's where this idea that I was allergic to myself came from. I mean that, but what how could you be allergic to yourself? What does that mean? So I wrote a whole book. Uh, a long book, because I was like, Well, okay, first of all, so that concept is paradoxical, and and Western scientific, bioscientific medicine knows that it has these big problems that in, uh, Western medicine, bioscientific medicine, immunology can't explain there's five things: cancer, like why why is there cancer? Autoimmune illnesses, that nobody understands that, pregnancy. Like, why doesn't the woman's body uh, reject the fetus? Because the fetus is other, right? Then uh, something called host versus graft disease, which is like, if you have transplant, it's, you know. And now the thing that's very popular, which is commensal bacteria. That is, we now understand that there's this entire microbiome in our guts that, you know, all kinds of bacteria and fungi and, That live in our intestines and live on our skin and everywhere that we have you know but how is it possible if it's self not self-discrimination that actually we have more dna in what we call our bodies that isn't our dna than the dna that was from the fertilized cell that you know emerged when we were first conceived like so they, they don't have answers, they know they don't have answers, they, and they futz around, like, you know, with my disease, Crohn's disease, you know, they, you know, they still, they still don't know what the cause, they don't know, like, why it occurs, they don't know why it occurs to the people that it occurs, they don't know why it occurs, when it occurs to the people it occurs, like, I got sick when I was 13, some people don't get sick until they're 45, you know, you have the same genes, like, you were born, you know, you were conceived. That's where, you know, It like, how did it get that? You know, you, you, you get it at 13. Again. So, you know, so there was all these things that I was like, well, what? this doesn't make sense. So I wrote a whole book about, well, where did this idea of immunity come from? Like, why is that the paradigm that we use to think about health and illness? And it turns out, Hey, guess what? It's, it's a new concept. It 1883 before 1883, it didn't exist immunity it, well, immunity existed immunity is a legal and political concept that has existed for over 2000 years it came from ancient it came from the roman empire and it was a, a legal trick that rome used as part of the way it expanded its empire it's a very important legal concept in the development of european nation states it was how the monarchs and churches negotiated their relative spheres of power. So in the West, like, for example, like I live in New York, uh, churches don't pay taxes. They're immune from taxes, right? That people in the, in the U S can take sanctuary in a church. So like around a lot of immigration struggles, you know, people who are undocumented will like take sanctuary in a church. All of that is from this ancient thing about immunity. Uh, That only at the end of the 19th century gets recruited as a biological concept to basically explain uh, why germ theory makes sense, because germ theory was first introduced in the 1870s, 1880s, you know. And the idea, and this is we again, this is something now like mostly everywhere, you know, within the ambit of you know scientific medicine, people take for granted. Oh, if you get an infection like COVID, like, or or if you get you know, any kind of, uh, and you know, a communicable infection that, it, you know, the cause is some kind of microbe that lives in our environment and, you know, and that there are all these pathogenic, you know, bacteria and viruses and, you know, and, and this is what we take for granted. This is what causes diseases, but there's a problem, you see, because if there are all of these pathogenic, you know, microbes that are just everywhere around us and that we're susceptible to them and they can cause these diseases, why aren't we sick all the time? Like, why are we even alive, right? And so this man named Ellie Metchnikoff in 1883, he was a zoologist, came up with this idea. He's like, oh, it's because org- organisms have this capacity of what he called host defense. That when organisms are attacked uh, by microbes, and, and it's very interesting, the example that was the the one that they used was cholera. And cholera was understood to be, I mean, I call it colonial blowback. It was, uh, it was understood to come from India and travel backwards by the trade routes that Europeans used to take, you know, the resources that they were expropriating from South Asia back to Europe to sell. And on those ships, the cholera bacillus also, you know, was traveling along. And so, and there were these huge cholera epidemics in Europe in the 19th century, a whole series of them, and they were represented. They were the way that they were talked about in the press, in politics, is these were attacks. Like Europeans were being attacked by this uh, disease that came from the East. So Metchnikoff was like, oh, okay, so if an infectious disease is an attack, and an organism is attacked. What's it, what's its response? It defends itself. Attack defense. And so he's like, oh, okay. So there's this natural defensive mechanism. He looked under a microscope. He saw these white blood cells engulfing, you know, uh, a, a little. And he uh, he attacked an, an organism with a rose thorn. These white blood cells kind of agglomerated around it, like to create pus. Um, and he's like, oh, I attacked. This starfish larva, these white blood cells, you know, came and responded to their defending. And then he called that immunity. So he said immunity is host defense. Um, of course, that's a kind of paradox, because in legal terms, if you're immune, you don't defend yourself. Like if you're immune from taxes or if you're immune, like in the U.S. we have a big thing where diplomats are immune from parking tickets. Like, you could get a parking ticket, but you don't have to pay it. And, it, you know, and everybody's like, why do they not get to pay? We have to pay the parking ticket. They don't pay a parking ticket. But, uh, but the whole point is that if you're immune, legally immune, you don't have to defend yourself. But biologically speaking, it's the opposite. It's like immunity is host defense. So it's a, it's a kind of paradoxical concept. So I when I started with that, I was like, okay, this basic idea that underwrites all of modern medicine actually is a metaphor and it has well-known limits and it actually doesn't really make sense like if we really wanted to talk about how do we live in a world with other organisms of different scales some of which have deleterious effects on us but other ones are benign and a lot of them turn out to be beneficial like if we didn't have all those microbes in our guts we wouldn't be able to digest anything, right? It's like, so some of them are helpful, some of them are benign, and some of them are harmful. Now, it seems to me that the idea of community might be a better way to describe that than immunity. And if we you know, were to think about how we lived in the world, not like we have this immune system that's fighting, but we have this immune system that helps us like negotiate how it is that as living organisms, we live with other organisms. we might have a really different way of thinking about not just health and illness but also about like what it means to be a human in relationship to other humans, right what it means to be an organism in relationship to other organisms. you know we might have a really different value system you know it you know one of the things about western medicine, scientific medicine is it has played a really large part in justifying a whole set of assumptions about economics, politics, like public health, right? You know, that uh, that are based on certain assumptions that may not even be correct. I mean, maybe empirically false. So, you know, when I say like medicine's not uh, um, a pure science, I mean, and, and and medicine knows this, I mean, like I, in my book, I say, you know when I just had I recently, a couple of years ago, I had a, a hip replacement and I literally had to sign a document saying, I understand that medicine is not an exact science. Like that was part of the their liability statement, right? Like I had to acknowledge, I mean, okay, I acknowledge that. Do you acknowledge that? Do you know that? No, you don't seem to understand that. Uh, so medicine, you know, at best applies certain kinds of scientific uh results that emerge from laboratory experiments usually on experimental animals, you know, and then extrapolates them and you know and I'm again I'm not saying that the effects are not wonderful. Like I you know I certainly would be dead. So I am not in you know I'm I'm happy to be a model for like the success. But but it's limited i mean there are many more things that we can do so what you were just you know describing uh you know in terms of i mean i you know i mean there's lots of ways of talking
0: what you're saying is actually like the gravitation force is an exact science because that is yes universal uh truth uh, in this
1: god yes exactly exactly physics chemistry uh you know, to some extent, biology, although it's a little bit, you know, in each one of those in the history of of science, each one, you know, seems to be a little less exact, you know, a little less, you know, uh, and medicine, but medicine isn't even one of those. Medicine relies on those, but it is itself not subject to the criteria of falsification that... You know, that constitute, philosophically constitute a pure science, for sure. Definitely not.
0: Um it's good you talked about, you know, all these experiments, which is, I uh, there's a, a module which I built in impact evaluation online course, where I of course talked about randomized control trials. And you were mm. talking about you know various experiments. Looking forward I wanted to also come out to one of your papers which you have written uh, the placebo Disavowed, or unwilling the biomedical imagination. It's a very uh, articulate and eloquent uh, written with a lot of artistic flair like I said I read <laughs> so, uh, I really love the way you write, you know putting up uh, so here you talked about for exploring the scholastic uh, the, the topic of efficacy of interventions, an In example, placebo, which we talked about. That's a key, key concept for understanding clinical trials and uh, attitude towards alternative uh, medication. The reason why I'm bringing it is because I did a bit of research and according to President's research, the global complementary and alternative medic- medicine uh, market was valued at about 92.65 billion. No, that's oh, yeah. a size, size. Yeah. And that was in 2021. And it's expected right. to reach around $404.114 billion by 2030. With a CGR growth of about 18% from 2021 to 2030. And this is where actually you are really focusing on right now. No, it's good that America, you know, very multidimensional, they're very multifaceted, adventurous, and usually they have a very positive attitude towards alternative medication. How do you how would you define or how would you see uh, this particular segment, alternative healthcare, developing in the U.S. and globally? And whatever differences you feel uh key differences between this complementary and uh, alternative medication.
1: So, um So it's important to understand that when certain kinds of therapeutic practices get characterized as either alternative or complementary medical uh, practices, we have to understand that they're being judged against what scientific medicine takes to be true. So they're already being framed as being somehow less rigorous, Less uh, trustworthy, less deter- deterministic. That's really what it is, you know, more questionable because it's still, you know, just the framing. It's alternative medicine. It's complementary medicine. That means that medicine is still the central term, and this is this thing that's on the edge of it. Now, what I think that you say, which is I is very interesting, is of course, okay. But then, if that's the case, why are people willing to spend so much out of pocket? And, and this is the key thing in in you know Western cultures uh, where there is medical insurance. Medical insurance pays for practices that are defined as bioscientifically credible, right? They don't pay for this other stuff, so this other stuff people are paying for by themselves that suggests that there is some desire that people have that is not being uh, met by the market in bioscientific medicine that people understand that and they are looking for something else so there are lots of other kinds of therapeutic practices that are uh efficacious you know in different kinds of contexts uh but they but they may not be subjectable to double blind testing which is the randomized control testing um and, and in part because we do, we don't actually acknowledge like really what's going on in randomized control testing, right? Because the whole thing about the placebo, right? Is the reason that medications or techniques or whatever, you know, have to be tested against a placebo is not because the placebo doesn't work. It's because the placebo does work, right? And that in order for a treatment or a drug or, you know, whatever to be considered to be effective it has to work better than the placebo. So one of the things that's like staring us right in the face is, oh wait, the placebos work. Well, why? Like that's not, no, no medicine did not ask why does the placebo work? It's just like, oh, well yeah, we know the placebo works, but we want something that works better than the placebo. And I'm like, well, maybe we could explore why the placebo works and then try to enhance and support the way the placebo functions, you know. But the thing about that is that you can't really quantify it and you can't really sell it in the ways that you can sell medical products. Like what you want, if you're a pharmaceutical company, is you want a, a medication that has produces reliable results that you can sell to a large market on a regular basis so that you can profit from it. Something that is, you might have to, you know, work on the relationship between the practitioner and the person coming for help, that it might be multifactorial. It might not just be like, I'm gonna give you a drug and that it might be like, oh, you know what? You need to change your diet. You need to like breathe some fresh air, get a little exercise. You know, oh, well, you know, maybe, you know, you could get a massage or, or, you know, maybe you could try, hey, this kind of herbal remedy, it seems to have worked for, you know, maybe you could try that, right? All of these things uh, are less deterministic, right? Require more, uh, they're less capital intensive, but they're more human experience contact right so like acupuncture for example you know i mean what do you need to do acupuncture you need a table and you need some needle and you need a person who knows where to stick the needle you know it's not like uh i am gonna do an mri scan machine co- you know for you know six million dollars that then i gotta you know put all these people through in order to to justify and make profit off of you know so we have to understand that you know when things are described as being alternative or complementary they're they're also being understood to be economically competitive with the medical industrial complex right and but that medicine has recognized that they are filling a market niche that it's not doing and that, you know, and some physicians do recognize the efficacy of different kinds of treatments. So that's why, like what I was saying before I cancer, like nobody knows cancer is not one thing. Like I, you know, I hate when people just say cancer because it's actually what we call cancer is a complex multifaceted number of metastatic conditions that they're not, you know, very, very, you know, like breast cancer is not pancreatic cancer is not liver cancer is not, you know, glioblastoma. It's like, these are all very different things. So, But anyway, just to put it that way, nobody knows what cancer is, why it occurs. There's no, you know, what, they, what can they do for cancer? In bioscientific medicine, they can poison you, they can burn you, they can give you chemotherapy, they can give you radiation, or they can cut you. They can do surgery. That's what they do, poison slash burn, poison slash burn. Is that all that can be done? No. Do they know that there are people who have like spontaneous remissions from cancer? Yes, are they interested in why those things occur? No, why? Because they can't sell you an oncology treatment. <laughs> they can't sell you radiation therapy. they can't sell so you know the economics of medicine you know creates you know circumstances that you know produce these kind of bifurcations. but then, as you were saying before, then there's this thing called wellness like i mean that kind of drives me nuts the wellness because I'm like what's wellness like well in English well well it can mean a hole in the ground to get water from but I mean but well is really an adverb it means the quality that you do something right so then you make an adverb into a noun uh, like well what the hell is what's that you know it's this noun of substance that's about the quality of like how you live and then I'm gonna sell you some stuff that's gonna like help you be weller than you were before and like to me it's not the techniques per se like many of the things that people are selling actually are interesting and like I like to say there there are many many things that can lead you to the door but you have to walk through it right and you know so there's nothing wrong with them oh
0: sorry just to to add i I think the one that things between complementary and alternative medication uh, it cannot be standardized that's one of those uh, yes it it, it could be like for example you took the example of acupuncture the expertise of the person delivering also matters a lot Uh, so there could be variations which maybe in medication you do not have and Right. There was also not much scientific evidence in the way they have either conducted randomized control trials to see because it takes like alternative therapies maybe takes a much longer time the effects is not going to be very straight or instantaneous, as with the 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 biomedical. Am I correct? Here? Would that be?
1: No, absolutely. But also like, just to stay on the acupuncture, you can't do a randomized uh, control trial because the person who's doing put needling you. So the way that they do the test when they try to do this is they make these fake needles that are retractable. So then when they, instead of, they put it on you and it you feel something on your skin and maybe you think that something has gone in, but the needle retracts and it just sticks, right? But so maybe the person receiving the treatment doesn't know the difference, but the practitioner knows the difference.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. Could be like, for example, homeopathy, Ayurveda, or, or other things.
1: Homeop- right? No, absolutely. Homeopathy is another one that that's really, if you talk to trained Western trained you know, bioscientifically trained doctors, they hate homeopathy. That's like witchcraft, you know. It's like, and yeah. I, I'm like, I I don't know. I'm not a big fan of. I mean, you know, like homeopathy is not my go-to, but I do know that when if I sprain something or if I get a bruise or like I had a hip replacement, I took a lot of Arnica and it really helped. Like, uh, I don't know why it's like, but, and I don't need a big theory, you know, I'm like, and it was cheap. It's like little, you know, so, you know, so that's, you know, you know, what we always have to remember about medicine, you know, and, and this is a Foucault thing and this is a modern thought thing and, you know, medicine is what we call a human science. It's not a, it's not a pure science. It's not a hard science, it's a human science. And as a human science, medicine, I think, is the most important human science in a certain way because not only does it treat us as living biological organisms and have the capacity to affect us on a cellular, molecular, and subatomic basis, but it also gives us frameworks for how we think about what it means to be human, right, and that I think is really underestimated in the the effects of uh of medical care, and that I think you know the way the assumptions about what it means to be human that that biomedicine incorporates are what what I would call highly individualistic. it's like it's all in you, it's all about you increasingly, they know They know a little bit of how your environment does affect you. They know, okay, what you eat or drink affects you. You know, now we have epigenetics. You know, they know that, you know, that there's like, oh, actually, you know, at a, cel- a cellular level and inter- genomic level, you know, that these, these effects endure across generations. We, we, you know, this is actually in their terms, these are proven things to be true, right? But still like the focus, is very much on one person, as if you know what? There is no such thing as one person. There's no such thing as an individual. There's only an individual in a context, right? Like it's like my one of my favorite psychoanalysts Winnicott says: "There's no such thing as a baby. There's only a baby and an adult. Baby by itself is a dead being, right? We are all that baby. We were that baby. We still are that baby, right?" And so so to me, that's really like, if I'm gonna say what's the difference between like alternative and complementary and bioscientific medicine, is like alternative and complementary actually open the frame. And they allow us to think, oh, wait, there are all of these other factors that we actually live in a really complicated world. And that we live in the world and the world lives in us. And maybe in order to live better to live otherwise it's not just about changing what's inside our skin it might be about changing how we live in the world right so
0: talk about alternative is this the subset of contemporary because that's a smaller set for example regressive hypnosis where will you categorize it as a healing practice if you, if you let's say go into would that come under alternative right. or
1: well i see personally i wouldn't i don't like either of those categories both of those categories keep medicine whenever you have to use the word medicine to describe something else that something else is less than medicine complimentary it doesn't matter to me because that's what they actually are ways of always calling us back to okay what's real is medicine these other things are like you know marginal uh hypnosis is a really interesting you know phenomenon uh i mean i've worked on the the history of hypnosis that goes back actually to the end of the 18th century this guy named mesmer uh in france who had the i mean he was like a trip i mean he was like a shaman kind of like he had these like experiences he, his idea was that that there was this thing uh that was a kind of like uh magnetic energy that you know flows and that what illness is it's very much like you know uh, uh east asian medicine you know it's like very much an energetic and that illness is a blockage and and what you know healing what enhances healing is helping the flow and he had this whole setup where people like would like channel the energy and they would be in this room and they would all be lying on these like you know, couches and they would be playing music and they would have all like experience. And and people said that they, you know, they testified, they got better. They, you know, like, and this actually was the first, like in terms of randomized controlled trials, this was the invention of the random, it wasn't called a randomized, it was, this is the invention of what we call blind testing. And the way they did it was literally by inventing a blindfold what they did is they took people and they put a blindfold on them so they couldn't see and then they said okay now we're channeling the energy you know and and the people go okay I feel it and then they're like okay now we're channeling the energy but they weren't and then the people are like oh no I feel that here here and they uh, and then uh, so they would be like doing this you know kind of testing and basically what they proved in that was that according to them and this was a very famous trial the most famous scientists of the 18th century you know lavoisier who's you know the founder of chemistry you know benjamin franklin you know he actually wrote the report guillotine you know the one who made the like cut off your head thing he was on it like all these people and and what they said is oh no um animal magnetism which is what you know Mesmer called it. They said animal magnetism doesn't exist, and it can't be producing the um, effects that it claims to. They said the effects that they acknowledged that there were effects. They said there are effects, but they said those effects are are produced by the imagination. And I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. So you have disqualified certain kinds of treatments because they're not deterministic. There's not a material cause, animal magnetism. You're saying that doesn't exist. However, you acknowledge that these changes occurred and that they were beneficial, but you're saying that they're the results of the imagination. So why then aren't you interested in how the imagination works to help people change on an organismic level? You would think that would be an interesting question. No, because what they were interested in defining was what was really medicine. Like they, it was all about determinant causality and it was defined, de, you know, derived from chemistry. Lavoisier, he invented analytic chemistry. That's his thing. And that's where medicine, that's the beginning of modern medicine. That, and that practice that Mesmer did then got picked up by alternative people in the 19th century. And that's where hypnotism comes from. Hypnotism was like derived, you know, from this earlier practice. And, you know, and and it was very popular. And lots, I mean, Freud tried practicing hypnotism. There were different schools of hypnotism
0: in the 19th century. A lot of people have sort of, you know, written books. Brian Briss is a very famous guy who keeps talking about it as visualization also. For example, whenever I'm talking about... I'm trying to sort of think that I'm there and representing the whole world and the audiences with me. So that's how I keep using this word, uh, you know, whenever I'm teaching us. Do you think uh, this sort of association as a community, which I think sometimes when I'm even interviewing people or dis- in a discussion, I'm sort of talking for my audience or you know for the set which I define. You think you think it sort of helps in connection uh, at a at a conscious at a very higher level. This is a very different question. It's sort of a damn what yeah. You know.
1: Yes. No. Absolutely. So I would say I mean I'm I'm a very big fan of what I think of as a field effect, which is a physics concept, like a physics, you know. Um, but and also, uh, so I do. I mean, I absolutely believe. Yes, we collectively uh, energetically affect each other all the time, and we and and it's like one of these things, and we absolutely know that, like we have that all the time, you know, we know if you're in a crowd or, you know, or like, I like the example I like to use is like, I do yoga, right? So the difference between doing yoga by yourself and doing yoga in a class, eh, it makes a huge difference if you're doing with other people or you're doing it by yourself, you could do the same asanas, right? And have a, you know, a really different experience. So to me, that also then flips around and says, well, what we think of as the self might be too limited like that and this is you know from you know many kinds of spiritual traditions you know around the world you know like in buddhism is like the easiest example you know where like the idea of no self like what does that mean well it's like self exists you know self in my world is an effect of the way that we use language that language gives us a container within which we can refer to ourselves as an i i say i me you know that's a but but that's a a form language is a form within which we um express ourselves in, in which we we clothe ourselves right but but what that form exists within is a much larger field, right? And the point of, you know, all of these different kinds of practices of meditation or ascetics or whatever, is to be able to cultivate the experience of, of letting go of that form and to being open to the capacity to, uh, to o- open to the capacity to utilize the resource that we're part of that that we don't always acknowledge when we're in our smaller self, right? And that that you know, and that's why I like to think of, you know, the what you know, the way that we are in the world is like how do you how do you participate in the world? Because I like the idea that we're parts. We're just part. We're part. We're particular. We're particulate. We're part, but we participate. And wanna and but when we understand that we participate, it's like, "What do you participate? We participate in something that's much bigger than us, all the time." And but we don't always value that, right? We don't always pay attention. We don't appreciate it, but it's always there.
0: Yeah, uh, I think we had a long conversation. Just to yeah. wrap it up, uh, would you like to speak something about your recent book? Or any anything you'd like to share before we come to the last question? <laughs> I have actually
1: before that. <laughs> uh, well the the my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know is really i mean many of the things that I've talked about are great too too great a length uh uh you know are touched on in different ways. but what I'm really you know trying to suggest to all of us is that uh we're more than we know, and that we have capacities that often are not realized. When we rely on medicine to tell us what's happening to us, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't appreciate or utilize those resources if they're available and if we can afford them, they can be very helpful. But what we might also want to remember is that medicine's ways of making sense of the world are are just one framework. And that if we open ourselves to other kinds of ways of understanding how we exist as living organisms, living among other organisms, that there might be a lot more resources available to us to live lives that are more flourishing, you know, more that might enhance our well-being on a daily basis.
0: Thanks, Lord. I really it was a it was a very long, very lengthy, but it was a very, a very talked in depth about a lot of topics, and I actually learned a lot today. And but, but you you know you spoke about uh, I, I forgot during the time of the discussion I was talking about women's equality, especially in America. When you look at so I think it's it was in 1862 when Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery and. Mm-hmm. I just, to Ask you that uh, how what sort of repercussions it also had on women because it brought in about a sea change it was a paradigm change, uh, do you think that had a huge effect also in uplifting uh, women? Oh my god! <laughs> just I thought you know when I was talking. To- <laughs> I'm like I, I, wait
1: you we've already gone on too long and then you asked yeah. me that
0: question. I thought I'll just ask you. <laughs> to my mind, uh, to I'm just going to
1: say that's like super complicated. And the and it's especially complicated because of the relationship between race and gender in this period of time. And that the way that slavery was defined in the United States was in terms of the condition of the mother. If the mother was a slave, then the child, even if the father was a slave owner, the child was still considered to be a slave. So the legacy of that particular dynamic and the way in which you know uh, enslaved women were subject to sexual violence uh, really complicates our understanding of like what it was, you know, what what it meant to be a woman. Certainly, what we think of as feminism in the U.S., many women's rights advocates were also abolitionists, and were in favor of. Of ending slavery, but there was a very complicated relationship between white women and black women, you know, in the period. And then, of course, with immigration and uh, you know, between Latino women and Asian women. I mean, super complicated.
0: <laughs> so many things in life. I really appreciate it. it's it's a lot of talents and different things. You know, it, it you have covered so many spaces. I would say. If you look at various spaces universally where you have spoken about or what you have done in life. So that's amazing. You know, that's, that, that's tremendous. And that's also great is that you get an opportunity in the U.S. also with their such a sound education system, the depth which they give you, the opportunities which they give you. And with this, I come to the last question, the aha question, which is always from Middle Road, is do speak about any, any, uh, you could share one or in multiple instances which brings a smile back in your life, you know, when you reflect back and you really feel happy.
1: Um. Well, I have many, many of those. Uh, I feel very blessed because, as you say, I'm very privileged. Uh, um, I would say on the west coast of the United States, there are these amazing forests uh, in the mountains that are covered with evergreen trees. And I was once coming back from a tai chi workshop and i stopped my car and got out of the car and walked into the forest and there was a a wonderful little stream that was running by and i took off my shoes and i stood in the middle of the stream and i just felt the forest breathing and I don't know what it was or how it was, but in that moment, I really viscerally understood I am way more than I know, and I have no idea what that
0: is. Yeah, nature, I think it's just the most amazing thing. And one of the greatest beauties of the U.S. is, of course, it's unbeautiful, just unimaginable nature. Something. Yes. And usually I always sometimes go, uh, uh, you know, go to the ground and put my hands in the soil just to get a feed. Absolutely.
1: Well, I'm a gardener, so I have a garden. I I mean, just digging, I mean, growing things. Yeah, I mean, you know, being in the, yes, all, I mean, it's like, oh my God, we're so lucky to be alive. I mean, you know, like, you know, why waste it?
0: You know, really I mean, uh, we've evolved over uh, you know <laughs> millions of years, and we have actually stayed with nature much more. I, I think you could say two thousand or three thousand years will be less than maybe five percent of the time which I have evolved over a period of time. If you look at the artist. oh, it's nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. So, thanks a lot. It's great to meet you, and I really appreciate you choosing the middle road. You know, oh. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the work. I mean, your research papers are really fantastic. I just oh, love it. Thank them. you.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. thank you for having me. Uh, it's, you know, uh, nice that people elsewhere also resonate with the stuff that I do. Um, you know, the problem of being an academic is too often it's we work on things that, you know, are in our little world zone. and. Um, so it's really nice that, that you know, you've resonated with it in some way. So I really appreciate that.